Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Success Harbor Podcast with George Mazaros, where it's all about making success happen for you. Hi, everyone. This is George Mazaros with Success Harbor, and I have Matt Streeb with me. Matt is a student hacker, naval warfighter, extreme environment network engineer, globally published author, software developer, entrepreneur, and executive, and, and, and more, I'm sure. Welcome, welcome Matt. Well, thank you, George. Uh, thanks for being here, Matt. Uh, tell me how and why you started Kinetic back in uh, uh, 96, right? You've been in business for about 17 years. Why IT and uh, not something else? Well, to be quite honest, it's something that I walked into as a young man. My experience in IT is an outgrowth of my experience as a, as a hacker when I was a kid, um, somewhat literally. I actually joined the Navy as part of a plea bargain agreement with a judge to eliminate some charges that, that I had accrued for things like not being able to drive and, and for a remnant hacking incident that isn't all that interesting, so I won't go into the details. But in any case, I joined the Navy partly because I was a hacker in high school. And in the Navy, I actually had the experience of transferring onto a boat that was attempting to put the very first LAN on a ship. This was a fiber optic deployment. It was early in the days of networking, so it was a, a netware network that they were trying to get going. Everything was installed, but nothing worked. And um, LAN is local area network, just for those that are not uh, in, in IT. Correct, yes. Okay. So this was the very first attempt uh, by the Navy to put a network on a ship. And the idea was they were going to replace teletypes and Xeroxes as message traffic to, um, to people on board ships between uh, commands back in the United States. So it was a very expensive process at the time to take a message destined for 40 people on board ship, have uh, a teletype receive it over a naval radio and then Xerox that fort message 40 times, maybe it's 10 pages, and distribute it you know, by hand walking it around the ship. So they were attempting to get this, this network working, but they were called away to the Gulf War before they completed it. I happened to be in the, in the, in the Gulf War theater at the time, transferred onto the ship, and using just my generic technical skill, in about two weeks I got that entire land lit up and operational. And it became my job at that moment to install and administer networks on ships for the Navy. I actually went kind of through the waterfront and consulted on five land installations, including my home command ship and uh, a couple of other ships culminating in, the, in, a, in a carrier before I got out in um, 1993 when I was 23 years old. So I came out of the Navy at 23 with a wealth of very difficult to obtain IT experience, and it just made sense to go to work for a defense contractor at the time. It was called Lambda Link. They were a subcontractor to a major defense contractor called SAIC. Some some people will have heard of SAIC, and some won't, um, because they do work primarily for the government. So I worked at Lambda Link for three years, and I headed up their extreme network environment engineering group. So I did hospitals, I did uh, oil platforms, uh, factories. And civilian ships, and did the and, and I did a lot of biotech laboratory work. So wherever there was some unusual extreme environment that had to be taken care of, it was my job to engineer those networks. So I did that for three years. Then the defense turndown came, and 
the company wound up evaporating. Basically, they got into a, a disagreement with SAIC, and SAIC took their contracts and went elsewhere. So I suddenly found myself uh, without a job, but I support contracts, which is really unusual. Um, we had some customers at Lambda Link that did a blood labs, a very difficult. This was an HIV blood lab that was very difficult to get into and out of, but they had to have IT assets inside the lab. And so I was the support person for that at Lambda Link. And when Lambda Link evaporated, that company, Johnson & Johnson, asked me to just take the contract on as a contractor and continue to support them because it was difficult to find somebody who could do the work and they didn't want to go through the, that process again. So I left. I lost my job, but I immediately became an IT independent consultant. So that was your first client, basically? Yes. So I, I actually left my job with a support contract intact and a fairly generous one, actually, because it had set up to the cost structure of a defense contractor, and then I just assumed it as a, as a direct independent contractor. So if you think back, and that was in 96, approximately? Yes, that's right. So if you think back, uh, let's say the first year in business, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced? Well, first of all, I was an independent consultant. So the biggest challenge was shoring up the fact that I couldn't work all the time. I found another consultant who I worked with so that he and I could trade off time. He could take vacation. I could take vacation. He could be on at times when I wasn't if something went wrong. So we kind of backed each other up. And he did his own independent consulting, too. And that worked out very well. And he later wound up becoming an employee of my company. So that was problem number one. Problem number two was that I was not an experienced businessman. I, I essentially knew nothing about it. I was 26 years old. I worked for a small business, and I had seen you know, enough of the business environment at Lambda Link to understand what was going to be necessary to run a business. But I had to teach myself how to be a businessman um, as I was going along. And, and I think that that's actually more commonly the case than anybody would like to admit to. That most often, founders know what they're doing technically, but know very little bit about the business side of it. So that was my biggest challenge. And I just kind of attacked it as any other technical challenge. I read a bunch of business books. I figured out kind of what a, that advice was useful and what wasn't, and just went forward and built my business. So did you have any fears back then, uh, you know, in terms of your business? Is it going to succeed? What's going to happen? How much impact do you think fear has in terms of starting a business and running a business successfully? I, I think it has a tremendous amount. I will say I was not afraid of it at the time. I was young. I was kind of stupid. <laughs> and I didn't know enough to be afraid of it, to be quite frank. Also, one kind of critical thing is because I was young, my bills were low. I didn't own a house, didn't have any kids. I had a wife, but she had a job. And so the risk was actually very low. It was an excellent time to start a business in my life. And, you know, I can see how it would become more difficult as time goes by and you've accumulated more responsibility and kind of more hard costs, which create that baseline for success. So the baseline for my success was very low. All I had to do was cover my rent, which at the time was $1,100 a month. So, no, I didn't have any fear, and that's why I kind of went forward very rapidly and grew my business, frankly, very rapidly at the time. I was able to increase my revenue pretty dramatically over the course of the next three years and start hiring people, incorporating, and uh, building the processes that became uh, what Kinetic is today. 
Okay. What is the size of your team right now in terms of, I mean, give us an idea who are some of your customers or clients and what is the size of your, your team? Sure. Our customers are primarily small businesses in the 20 to 100 user size range, which is kind of a good fit for San Diego, our home market. I have a staff of 20 engineers. Everybody at Kinetic works from a home office and always has. So our, our office is, is somewhat virtual. And I, for that reason, I have technicians that live in five states. So we support customers all over the country and, and some customers internationally. But the majority of our clientele are here in San Diego. And the majority of our customers are in that 20 to 100 user size range. They're general office businesses. We avoid retail, um, government, schools, and, and military. So we're focused primarily on general office sorts of businesses. And we have a big focus in biotech. We're the largest IT provider to biotechs in San Diego. Yeah, I, you know, I'm really glad you brought the, uh, the virtual team and home office because, you know, I, I go to a lot of business meetings and one of the first questions that people ask is, you know, how many people in your company? And it's such an old question in 2014 to ask. You know, there's, you know, there's so many great businesses with virtual teams, and there's still a, kind of an aversion or I don't know, a distrust towards a virtual team. Like in my business, I have anywhere from six to ten people on my team all the time. Why do you think people still have a hard time thinking about companies with virtual teams? Well, I would say that, first of all, there's an aversion to anything that isn't similar to the way that they work. It is a question that we run into. Now, my staff of 20 are all W-2 employees, so they're not, um, they're not contractors, and they do work full-time for Kinetic on a salaried basis. But we do get a lot of kind of, I'm going to say, cur curiosity to resistance. Sometimes when people hear that we don't have a main office, people will say, hey, let's meet at your office. And, well, let's have lunch at a restaurant or let's meet at your office because we don't have an office. And, and that always raises an eyebrow. So we, frankly, I think we have to have those people go through our trade references and, and, and kind of confirm that, yeah, we're, we're an actual operating business, even though we don't have an address um, with a building attached to it. I think that a lot of people just don't understand how you could keep track of employees who aren't sitting right there where you can watch them. And the answer to that is we use a lot of online systems and always have systems that we built ourselves to coordinate work and to monitor kinetic. So at any time, I can log into systems that will tell me exactly who's logged in, what kind of work they're doing, how many tickets they're closing. I can build a scatter graph to see exactly when they're working throughout the day. I actually have a lot more insight into how much work people are getting done for my business than the vast majority of managers who can sit there and watch people at their desks. But that kind of infrastructure is important or you will never be able to separate people who actually accomplish things from people who, who just sit there and ride the day out. And how important do you think is recurring revenue in the business in terms of being able to grow the business and just to succeed overall? Well, my business is based entirely on recurring revenue and always has been. We actually do not take on project work, which is what we call non-recurring contracts. We only sign service agreements with customers that are intended to be long-term. We have customers that we've had on, under continuous service contracts for over 12 years now. And for a 17-year-old company, that's pretty good. The majority of our customers are with us for a very long time. I personally find it to be critical to the growth of a company. You can build a company on one-off project work. You're going to get to a certain size, 
where you plateau because the amount of effort required to bring new work in and be out there constantly in the sales cycle is going to equal the amount of work that you that you, that you're able to accomplish and you're going to have to have a sales team that's as large as your engineering team if not larger in order to continue bringing that business in and i see a lot of competitors of mine who are working in that mode and unable to understand why we've achieved consistent growth of 25 to 30% per year i actually cap growth at 30% and don't take new clients on after that but why we've been able to achieve that consistent growth while they are kind of mired in project by project by project work and, and, and not seeing the growth that they'd like to see. It's because for us, every new sale is new permanent revenue, not you know two months of revenue, then we have to go out and sell again to that same customer. Uh, has it always been like that in your business? It totally makes sense to me, but was it a decision that you had to make down the road in your business, or when you started out in, initially, this was the way you wanted to run your business? Well, I came out of the gate with a service contract and immediately saw the value of that. So I went out after a service model contracting business. Now, in the beginning, I did take on one-off contracts, basically any work that came to me. I would take on. And what I realized very early on was that that one-off work, those projects, were a huge distraction to my consistently paying customers. And even though I could make 10 times as much in a month on a project as I would make from one of my recurring customers, I was never going to be able to fill the pipeline with projects consistently. And so it was more important to keep my customers happy. And so I think the business was about four years old when I stopped taking on any kind of one-off service project with the solitary exception that we do do security auditing on a, on a annual basis for customers that looks like project work, but it's the same customers over and over every year. So, you know, I guess I would say I started out of the gate with the recurring revenue model. And I dipped my toe in the, um, in the project basis and decided it wasn't for me. Okay. Uh, so far, it sounds like you know everything in your business went extremely well for you. But you know, I'm sure there were challenges. Uh, can you talk about maybe a big mistake that you made in your business? Absolutely. The first major mistake that I made was during the dot com bubble in 2001. We were heavily exposed to dot coms as customers. They had blown up rapidly in the late 90s. And I had the ability to put together the sophisticated networks that these new dot-coms needed at a time when they couldn't hire employees to do it. So we had a large number of dot-coms that we were exposed to. More than half of my business's recurring revenue was being received from just three customers at that time. So in 2001, the dot-com bubble burst, and those three customers evaporated in the same month. So it was a catastrophe for my business because at that point I had six employees. They were all salaried, and they were all relying on me for their, for their income. The company lost half of its revenue, and as a novice businessman and somebody who hires friends of theirs routinely, and I still do, and I still recommend it despite what other business people would say. But So I had a personal relationship with my employees beyond just a, a work relationship, and I made the critical mistake of not laying them off when I should have. I actually carried the salaries of th four people that I couldn't afford for six months beyond the time that the revenue to pay them had ceased coming in, in the false belief that I was going to be able to go out in this massive um, downturn and sell new services to replace 
that kind of one-time uh, in a generation money that was coming from the dot-com boom. So I kept a bunch of staff on salary, wound up running up a fairly large debt, and got to the point where I had to had to take a second mortgage out on my house to keep the business afloat and wound up having to lay those guys off anyway. The worst part was they could have all gotten another job somewhere else. You tend to think as a business owner when you lay someone off, it's the end of their life, but it's not. They go get another job. And what I wound up doing was digging myself uh, you know, a quarter million dollars into debt when I didn't need to for any reason at all, only because I was afraid of hurting people's feelings. I was afraid that my business was collapsing, and I was afraid of making the tough decisions that were really required to keep the business alive. And while I did survive that because of, th thankfully, we were having a housing boom at the time that offset the, the drop in um, the uh, tech market, it did significantly delay the growth of my business. It took three years to dig out of that debt hole. And so that kind of used up the time period between two, 2001 to 2005 where my growth was flat and where I could have still been moving forward had I not been afraid of consequences and made the right decision when it needed to be made. So that that must have been real tough, and you know I think everybody that's in business has has stories similar or or something like that. So it's kind of a roller coaster ride for us. How do you deal with it? Is it easier now than it was back in '96 when you started out? Have you developed some new skills to deal with it? Uh, what's your advice on that? Well, absolutely, it's easier as the business has gotten larger and our processes have become more routine and our customer base has become more, I'm going to say, homogenous. We, we tend to go after the same verticals, the same industries, where we know we're really good. So I would say size is a big factor. The company has become much easier to run with 20 people than it was with 10, and it was easier at 10 people than it was with 5. There's just a lot more that's automatically taken care of by the law of averages. We always have people available. There's always, you know, we don't have any trouble with people taking a vacation and, and, and having it be kind of difficult on everybody else. So size has made it easier, number one. Number two, I did go through some business training with companies like Vistage and, and some CEO groups to really fill in my own gaps um, as a leader and as a manager. That has helped a lot. Primarily what it's helped me to do is learn how to delegate and to enable my staff to take on challenges bigger than just the technical role. So as, a, as an IT guy, as a kind of, I'm going to say, as a geek, I was used to being the hero, the guy that would come in, fix all the problems, and everybody loved it, everything is up now, and you kind of get used to that as an IT guy. When you become a manager, all of that goes away. All, all you're dealing with is um, people who need time off. You're dealing with hiring and firing and, and all of these processes that, to me, are a lot less, I'm going to say, thrilling than the IT work that I like to do. So I would still insert myself into engineering business where I was still very, very competent, very talented, but where I was also blocking my own employees from, from getting that same experience I would come into a meeting, I would you know, pontificate about how things ought to be done. Everybody would say, well, Matt said that's how it should be done, so that's how we're going to do it. And my guys would lack the experience um, of designing those systems themselves. So it took me a lot, and, frank and frankly, it took two of my employees sitting me down and saying, Matt, you've got to stop doing this because you know, 
it, it's 20 men now, not a one-man show. And you got to start acting more like a CEO, an IT technician. So that was probably my biggest, I'm going to say, teaching moment since I've uh, since I've been doing this was to step back and, and allow my team the space to succeed, which is not what I had been doing. Now, everyone is competition. How do you differentiate yourself from from others in in your field? Uh, is that something that you uh, consciously do, or you just you just run your business, or do you have some some conscious uh, efforts to to really try to differentiate yourself from all the others out there that that do IT or manage services? So we absolutely do consciously differentiate ourselves from our competitors by our business model, and I think it is I think it's responsible for about fifty percent of the success of the business, the other half being quality and our ability to deliver um, exactly what we say we're going to do when we say we're going to do it. There are a lot of good IT companies out there. There's a lot of carpetbaggers too, um, but there are good, competent competitors of ours in Diego. What we do to differentiate is our fixed price per user per month model, where our customers pay us only a very specific fixed fee per employee, per month, and for that, we manage 100% of their IT services. They never pay by the hour. They never pay for anything above or beyond that. There's no upcharge for anything ever. Large projects are included. Everything is included. Our customers love that because, first of all, we're usually talking to a CFO, and what they want to do is have a budgetable line item for IT without any surprises. So it fits their need. It also aligns us with the customer's desire most of our competitors work on a uh, base plus hours or pure hourly basis. The problem with that, even when the IT company is completely ethical and only has the customer's best interest in mind, is that they will often have to go into the customer and explain some arcane technical subject that needs to be fixed in their network that isn't causing any business impact right now, might do in the future, and they want to fixing it. Like say they've got active directory corruption or something like that. The business owner is hearing blah, 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 25 hours. Um, and we want to charge you, you know, some two, $3,000 to go fix a problem that you don't know what it is. We can't really explain it to you. We're saying it's important. Um, you're seeing just money going down a hole for no reason. And you say no. So the IT company is now prevented from fixing this problem because they can't expend hours on it. And then sure enough, it does cause a problem in the future and you have this failure episode. Then the, comp then the IT company is in emergency mode, charging emergency money to fix this problem that they saw coming but couldn't explain to their client. In our case, we've already told the customer, we're going to do everything on an unlimited basis. When we see those kinds of problems arise, we just fix them. We don't have to go have a conversation about expending hours to go do this. So the problem never occurs in the first place. Our customers have much smoother operational um, status than those of our competitors because we're not in this break-fix cycle caused by the need to go account for hours. Uh, so it's a huge benefit in that it aligns the customer's desire, which is uptime, with our desire, which is to do less emergency work because that's hard to schedule, and allows me to provide this fixed price that just averages all of these costs out over time. So that's our differentiator. Nobody else in town works anything like that way. And whenever we're sitting down at the table bidding against them, 
we win most of the time. We're over 50% to win a bid, irrespective of how many bidders there are at the table every time we go in. And the reason for that is that our business model sounds so much more compelling. Our competitors have been unable to adopt it because it affects everything about how we work. All of our systems are built to this. All of our employee agreements are constructed around it. It's why we pay salaries instead of an hourly wage. And all of the way that we do business operates around this. We don't have accounting systems that account for hours. We don't have billing systems that bill that way. Our billing systems are built in-house to our own custom model. And so difficult for a competitor of ours to adopt our model, really. They can say they do it, but what they're really doing is behind the scenes accounting for hours and trying to figure out how to make things balance. So it's uh, it's an interesting differentiator, something that we definitely explicitly do specifically for the competitive advantage of it. Wow. That's, uh, you know, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, have you ever considered franchising this model? I mean, I, it's, it's kind of non-related to this, this interview, but I, I don't know. I, you don't have to answer that, but I, I was just thinking about that. Well, I absolutely have considered franchising it. Um, I've, in fact, I've looked into it very deeply. I've looked at different ways to grow the business overall, including roll-up acquisition models and, uh, and franchising. Franchising is probably the simplest way to go, and I'm actually doing a test franchise right now in the eastern Washington area. Um, basically, what we do is, is try to find an operator who has both the technical skill and the business sales acumen to go out and, you know, under the kinetic umbrella – he can sell the service level to his clients. He'll be the boots on the ground person. We will handle the um, help desk and remote network operations. So we bring all the expertise and all the guarantee to it. He provides the, the work labor of finding the customers and servicing them on site, having a monthly meeting with them. And we're going to see how it goes. If it yeah, works well, yeah, that's exactly how we're going to sounds. It. it sounds really interesting. Um, you know, I was, I was going to ask you about wasting time you know i think a lot of entrepreneurs feel like they're constantly overwhelmed but i would imagine a lot of that is wasting time or something that's not productive what do you think what do you see is the biggest time waster for for entrepreneurs meeting with people who really are not going to move their business forward there when you're an entrepreneur you do a lot of meetings with a lot of people and at a certain point i think you have to start discriminating how this person is going to help you move your business forward, be they a customer or a business partner or, or, or an affiliated person. There's, you have to build network as well. Um, but to be quite frank, there are a lot of people out there who um, you're going to bump into that are just not going to, you know, they'll want a lot from you without giving a lot back. And, and, and so I would say take a look at that. Another thing I would do is definitely read David Allen's book, Getting Things Done, and adopt a work methodology that allows you to stop acting on things that are urgent because they're popping up today and start acting on things that are important to you to get accomplished in some time frame. Getting Things Done is a methodology that lets you sort kind of all of the things that are coming in to you, automatically prioritize them in a process, and then work on the things that are most important to you are most important to the people that are trying to, to load you down and, and give you tasks. That was critical for me to get away from the working in the emergency urgent mode 
to working on the business and growing the business. If you don't have enough staff to delegate that emergency stuff to, then you don't have enough, uh, then your business isn't big enough to handle that work and you should be turning it down. So let's say your, uh, your best friend or somebody in your family came to you and they're working for somebody, but they want to become an entrepreneur. What would be the first thing that you would teach that person? I would tell them to take a look at their place in life and see if it's an appropriate moment for them. You know, if honestly, if they just had a baby, maybe now is not the good time. They should wait until their risk is at the lowest possible state. So when they've got a little bit of money saved up or they can talk somebody into money um, to get their business going, a time when there aren't a whole lot of people relying on them for um, their sustenance, and a time that makes sense in their life where they can actually focus on this for three, four, five years. Unfortunately, most entrepreneurs are actually motivated by the fact that they just lost their job, same as me, when I started my business. So very easy for me to understand. But that's usually not the greatest time to start a business. Uh, I would say go get another job first. If you're serious about being an entrepreneur, then you can work on building your business while, uh, at night while you have your, your day job and then smoothly transition from that income from your day job over to your business. I will also say, though, you need to understand when it's time to quit and to go full forward with your business um, rather than trying to keep one foot in both worlds. Once you've got momentum going in your business, you do have to take that risk and, and jump in at some point. I would just say don't do it if you're you know, already in debt. That's going to be a very difficult uh, place to start a business out of, and the business might fail for reasons that have nothing to do with its own um, inherent uh, quality. I have just two more questions. One, what are maybe two or three or just one of your favorite book that, that you read recently uh, that helped your business or, or ever? So I will say getting things done is a game changer. I think everybody who's run, who, I think everybody ought to read it, period. Um, it's a really good methodology for getting yourself organized. And if you find you're the person who has good ideas but never gets things done, that's the book for you. Another great one, in my opinion, Venture Deals, I just read. It's a very comprehensive overview of how to capitalize your business. If you've got an idea for a product, it's not great for services, most likely, unless they're web services. But if you've got a product you can, and you need money to get it developed, you should read Venture Deals. It goes through what venture capitalists think and, and really all the background detailed information about how to go get money. So those two come to mind immediately third book that's great for business. I really liked the game. Um, taught me a lot. I read it when I was younger about how to do just-in-time uh, business management and business management in general. Good. Uh, that's good. Any last words of uh, wisdom to share about either somebody that you know has a business but wants to take the business to the next level or you know somebody just starting out? Well, you know, yeah, I would say um, set realistic expectations. If you're running a project-based business, you are going to have to have a major sales force, and you're going to be out there beating the bushes for work all the time. Try to figure out how you can get that recurring revenue model going, if possible. Um, if you have a product business, that's that's a different thing. And I actually don't have a whole lot of experience in product businesses, having worked in services my whole life. But yeah, I would say look at other businesses that are operating the way that you want to operate and ask yourself, should you be adopting their model? And if so, what should you differentiate to make yourself unique that really pulls out your particular unique value? 
Um, I think businesses are should be about 90% similar to other businesses in their industry and about 10% different. They're not different at all. They don't have any real reason why they would compete very well. But if they're too different, they're probably wrong. Um, not to say that's always the case, but usually businesses are built the way they are for good reasons uh, that may not be obvious. And when you go at something from a completely different angle, it's a lot harder to figure out how to make it succeed. So I would say look at your competitors. Don't try to copy everything they do, but look at the way they operate and say, honestly, is that what we should be doing or not? Well, Matt, thank you very much. I appreciate your time and sharing your your experience in business. Um, Thank you. And if somebody wants to connect you, uh, how can they connect with you? So the probably the best way is to send me an email. I know it's a little old school, but my email address is mbs at kinetic.net. So that's mbs is in Matthew Brent Streeb, and kinetic is spelled C-O-N-N-E-T-I-C dot net. Um, just send me an email there, or you can find me on LinkedIn. I Google pretty easily there, S-T-R. E is an echo, B is in boy, E is an echo. You can also search on Amazon to find the, the books that I've written off on my last name. Um, That's great. Well, Matt, thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thanks, George. It's been fun.